there's no substitute for practicing breathing more slowly, literal breathing and metaphorical breathing and being in community with other people who you can talk meaningfully about what matters, what your gifts are and what your needs are. Hi, I'm Brian Pearson. You are in the cave. We were born before the wind. Also younger than the sun. And our bonnet boat was one as we sailed into the mystic. The Mystic Cave is a sanctuary for the seeker. Stories, conversations, and reflections about the soulful terrain on the far side of conventional religion. Welcome. We live in frightening times. It's foolhardy to think we can watch the evening news and then go to bed to sleep in peace. Those images follow us into our dreams. Images of war and violence images of environmental degradation, images of political opportunism. And lest we think that we're safe in our beds, we carry with us as well the omens of communal disease and social unrest and the precarious state of the economy. It is surprising then that someone born into the midst of the troubles in the north of Ireland, someone born gay in a homophobic world, Someone born with a soulful vision in a mechanistic age would be the herald of hope. But that's precisely what Gareth Higgins has become. Part community organizer, part public speaker and storyteller, part writer and soon-to-be stage performer, Gareth wears his humanity on the outside, his fear, his courage, his doubts, and most of all, his infectious sense of humor. His recent book is How Not to Be Afraid, Seven Ways to Live When Everything is Terrifying. We begin our conversation with Gareth reading one of the blessings with which he concludes the book, A Blessing for Breath. Blessing for breath. Breathe, knowing that every molecule, both within and without your body, is stardust and imbued with the light of God. Nothing separate, all a spiral into and from love. Breathe knowing that the worst pain in your life has already been experienced by the mercy of the universe. Breathe, knowing that if the stones yearn to become cathedrals, then you, enfleshment of divinity, mingling of sacred and profane, a little lower than the angels, are not the sum total of the worst things that have happened to you or the worst things you have done. Breathe, knowing that the ones you admire the most, the Gandhis and Mother Teresas and Fannie Lou Hamers and those who clear landmines and lie down with lions for the sake of peace, these are the fruits of lives that have been crucibled in suffering. No one becomes great without first being brought low. No one develops true empathy for the greatest suffering without touching some of that suffering themselves. Breathe. That is just, it is so lovely. Um, let me tell you what I thought that when I first read it, I thought... It's too bad 
that the writers of the Bible didn't have you on contract as, 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 a, as a script script consultant, because I'll tell you why. <clears throat> hold on, Every, hold on. You, you, if, if you get to tell me why before the bolt of lightning that's about to strike me down. <laughs> I'll risk it. <laughs> because it's true that... Every time an angel appears in the Bible, what do they say? They say, do not fear, yeah. do not be afraid. Yeah. And I think that's the worst advice ever. You don't <laughs> tell somebody who's afraid, oh, stop being afraid. Mm. I thought, you know, if they'd had you as a consultant, you would have said, no, 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 no. What they ought to say, the angel, each time they ought to say, breathe, just breathe, calm down and just breathe. So let's start there because there's something in that about how we approach fear well, we, yeah. right we don't approach it by by denying it or, or certainly by oh, yeah. you know shutting it down oh yeah and i mean you know the well thank you for that this is it's a it's a relatively high bar to be told that <laughs> I, I i should have been a script consultant for the bible I, <laughs> well um <laughs> my ego might like that idea uh but uh i think i think the bible the the bible's okay as it as it is <laughs> as it is what we what we bring to it i mean that's the that's the piece right you know that that yeah. at least you know the tradition that i come from I, you know i'm i'm imagining that what those angels are doing is is like the the preamble that they're not saying out loud is hey i know i'm probably scaring you right now but there's no re there's no need to be afraid there's no need yeah. to be afraid I've, I've actually got something i've got something good or reassuring to tell you here the yeah. title of this book how not to be afraid is it's almost like a little bit of a joke because um it's it it's not called how to stop feeling fear yeah, it's called how yeah. not to be afraid, and it's kind of a play on the same idea that that the TV show What Not to Wear is saying. Because <laughs> What Not to Wear wasn't prescribing that we should all walk around naked. Um, it it was saying don't wear this, wear this instead. And yes, yes. So how not to be afraid is these are invitations to imagine if fear is inevitable, which it is. And sometimes it's necessary and helpful. It stops us walking out in front of traffic or standing too close to the edge of a cliff. Um, and then it's wisdom, actually. Um, yeah. Fear might not be the, 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 the best word for it. It's, it's wisdom. So if it's inevitable and necessary, but we're overwhelmed by it, are there ways that we can ask how much of the fear that I feel is not inevitable? Yeah. And how much of it is not necessary or not helpful? Because yeah. if it is hurting me or t or exhausting me or distracting me or just creating distress and unpleasantness in my life and I don't yeah. have to and there is no benefit to experiencing this, are there steps we can take? Uh, because otherwise we're just going to be buffeted around by the bombardment of information that comes our way from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to sleep and that will even affect our dreams. And so it becomes this kind of vicious circle that, you know, yeah. um, the stories we're telling each other in this culture, as in every culture are shaping our uh, beliefs about the limits of the possible. Yeah. And if those stories are not true or not helpful, we need to change those stories this Absolutely. doesn't this doesn't yeah. mean that if you're experiencing fear that there's something wrong with you and it doesn't mean that if you have particularly debilitating fear that there's something more wrong with you than people who don't seem to have debilitating fear i've met people who tell me they don't experience debilitating fear and i'm i'm intrigued i'm curious about these people because i don't know what that's like <laughs> <laughs> but I, yeah. I think i have learned or i am learning that there's a degree of choice and consciousness that we can bring to healing the unnecessary and unhelpful fear in our lives. Do, do you know what it makes me think, actually, is the Buddhist notion that pain is inevitable, but suffering is not. Yeah. Another way I would put that is life is, life is going to be difficult and it's going to have gifts as well there is a degree of choice about whether or not we make it more difficult than it mm -hmm. needs to be. 
-hmm. and many of us do make it more difficult than it needs to be both for ourselves and others because of the way we we show up and the impact that we have on others and the journey of life is about that part of it is about learning which 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 of these difficulties can i change yeah which can i not change (laughs) Yeah. And what part of them might actually have some kind of gift in it for me? Yeah. And I know that as soon as I say that, it is completely legitimate for some people to respond with, well, it's easy for you to say. And I would want to say to people who might feel that, yes, um, it, it, there are areas where it is easy for me to say. There's no doubt that I have some gifts. I have some privileges that so many other people don't have. Um, and I would never want to impose ease of my life as a lens through looking at your life, uh, nor um, do I want to deny or understate to myself my own suffering. Uh, I don't think it is a helpful, uh, I don't think it's helpful to claim that just because I have some gifts and privileges, that means I don't have some pain and some lack. I actually think it's very important for all of us to discern authentically what our gifts and privileges are so that we can use them as ways of serving the world, particularly people who don't have those gifts and privileges. And um, someone said to me once that the worst thing you can do with power is pretend you don't have it Um, (laughs) because that means you'll be like a bull in a China shop. You'll wreak havoc in the lives of others. I and take no responsibility for it. I take no responsibility. It's not me. It yeah. wasn't. Yes, exactly. Or, or, or perhaps you know, equally bad, or maybe even worse. Someone who has a tremendous gift, but hides it because of a sort of a misguided, perhaps well-intentioned notion of humility, or I don't want to get in the way. And when actually you might be the person who is called to rescue, to save, to intervene. And by the same token, I think one of the worst things you can do with lack is to deny uh, that you that you have this lack. We've all known people who will say, oh, no, 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 I'm completely fine. I'm completely fine. Don't mind me. And then suddenly you discover that they're actually very unwell or in deep distress or they are building up resentment against you know, yeah. they, they do have a degree of responsibility for asking for help. We don't live in a culture that promotes the simple discernment of my gifts and my needs yeah. and the building of communities that are close enough in which people know each other well enough to develop interdependent ways of relating, which means quite simply, we gather Brian and Gareth, you and I, and we get to know each other, and over time, we learn what each other's gifts are, and we learn what each other's needs are. And if I can help meet your needs, great. And maybe I can't do it directly, but I might help you find someone who can, or at the very least, help you name the need, and we can sit in the ashes together, uh, which in itself is a form of meeting the need because it provides solidarity and reassurance. Well. I, I want to come back and talk about all that because there's something about being in someone else's corner with them. Even if the, you have no advice and no gift to bring, your presence alone can be bad. But I want to come back to that. But I want to talk a little bit about your own journey because you don't hide in your storytelling about your life. You don't hide your own fear. And yet what we see now is someone who is a peace activist, uh, uh a sometime festival director, I don't think you're still doing that, but a public speaker who stands out in front of people telling stories, a published writer, and we know how vulnerable that can be. All these things that, to my mind, speak of courage. But that's not how your story started. I grew up in the north of Ireland, and the the period of civil conflict that some people call the Troubles had begun about seven years before I was born. And it continued in its, in its most active form until I was 19 years old. And at one level, I was very kind of isolated from the active violence. There were, there were you know, certain kind of parts of the place where there was definitely more active violence than others. Uh, at another level, nobody in our society was completely insulated from it. And 
then there were specific ways in which it affected my family, particularly my parents. Both of my parents were shockingly bereaved um, with people they knew well uh, being killed. And then there was the uncertainty uh, of, of life. And there were ways in which uh, the violence was just part of the fabric of the story of our lives. Um, and I... Until I was probably in my mid-twenties, I didn't really feel it as a threat. And and again, the active conflict had ended and there was an active peace process, although there have still been, I mean, many people have suffered uh, since those ceasefires were called 30 years ago. Um, numerically, it's much, much fewer than it was in the, in the most active period. Um, but I didn't really feel it as a threat or a fear until I was in my mid-twenties. And I think that's the delayed trauma response. And a lot of people oh, yeah. in civil conflict situations, it's when you move into the peace process period where there is, frankly, space for that trauma to surface. Because yeah. the rest of the time, you're just trying to get through the day and, you know, manage. And um, it's it's when it kind of stops that it's like a like a whiplash thing that happens. And I think there can also be a sense of the, the futility of the violence is much more obvious when the people who had supported the use of violence have decided to stop using it and started to collaborate and cooperate uh, with each other. And it's, yeah. it's, it's a very natural thing to feel that way. So I don't want to overstate the fear of my childhood regarding the violence that kind mm -hmm. that kind of came retroactively wow. um the, the the piece that was more uh acute in my conscious experience frankly was what i what i would now see as being cultural societal and religious homophobia growing up mm -hmm. as a person who knew from an uh, you know an early age that i was different different being the you know the and, and that that's a neutral uh, word the words that that I was introduced to uh, as a teenager were sinful and sick and frankly even uh, demon possessed because yeah. of uh, part of the religious tradition I was part of that we that, and and that's what you know human beings do that to each other we exile yeah. uh, each other we we scapegoat uh, each other um, uh, whether it's on the grounds of uh, racism or sexism or homophobia or other forms of prejudice and they're all at the end of the day, about our inability or refusal to accept the multidimensional nature of ourselves. Yeah. You know, yeah. there was no good reason to tell me that I was sinful, sick, or demon possessed. <laughs> there was no good reason. There was no good reason even to find kinder ways to say those things. The 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 truthful thing, the authentic thing, the holy thing. The good thing, the humane thing to have said uh, would have been, hey, listen, um, uh, I, I think um, uh, you might be gay or bisexual and uh, I'd, 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 I think you might find some complexities with that because currently, currently we live in a society that's very homophobic and biphobic and I, as a mentor or a friend or an older person or a church leader, I'm going to come alongside you and I'm going to be, to go to use your analogy, in your corner right? In your corner. Yeah. And I've never thought about this before, but the way you use that term in your corner is, I think, tremendously helpful because um, solid, true solidarity, my, my understanding, true solidarity can only be embodied by someone who is suffering exactly the same things as you are with the same resources that you have. Mm -hmm. Anything else at best is allyship. And yeah. as, as, uh, you know, many of us agree that, that it's not my place to say that I am an ally to women or I am an ally to people of color uh, or yeah. indigenous people. Um, what I can say is I am I aspire to be an ally to people who don't hold privileges that I hold. Yeah. And the most I can be is in their corner in the way that Burgess Meredith is in Rocky's corner in the movie yes. Rocky as the coach who's not actually in the ring. Yeah. Right. Yeah, Rocky yeah. is in the ring. Rocky is the one getting beaten up and the coach is in the corner and doesn't actually suffer what Rocky is suffering. And sometimes it's the coach's job to get into the ring and say, stop 
or I'm going to stand between you and the people who are. Uh, yeah. But you know, if we if we if we if we make it an analogy that's figurative and not literal about being beaten up, I think it's a really good analogy for aspirational allyship that I will do what I can to be in your corner. And sometimes that means I will intervene, but I cannot for a moment pretend that I'm suffering what you are suffering. So if I'm hearing you correctly, it is possible for someone else to say, you're an ally because that's how they experience me. It's not for me to assume that I am. And what I'm thinking of the parallel is people so I was, I was at a, a conference with someone who said his goal was to become an elder by the time he was 50. Uh -huh. And I, I didn't say this, <laughs> but what I thought at the time was, that's actually not your call. Mm. It's not like you're mm. going to say, there, now I'm an elder, I'm going to put out my shingle. You're an elder when someone calls you an elder, when someone yeah. treats you in that way, right? There's yeah. a sense of respectfulness of saying, I can aspire to this, mm. but until someone receives mm -hmm. me this way, that's not me it's not for yeah. me to say is that, that's what you're saying yeah i think that's lovely and i think that you know it's it's again i, I don't want to police language uh for 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 people i think it's probably just part of the evolutionary stage of becoming more in the corner of someone else to realize oh the most i can do is aspire to this and then take conscious steps which include asking the people i'm trying to support how am i doing not so that I can get a medal, but because yeah, yeah, I want yeah. I want at least my aspirational allyship to not make things worse. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> at the, yeah. At the very least, at yeah. the very least. Um, and so, you know, I I um, I didn't have I didn't have a conscious. I guess we could call them queer affirming allies that I yeah. noticed until when, when, I, when how, I was young. Oh. Well, I mean, this is an interesting because things have changed so quickly generationally. Um, yeah. uh, you know, I didn't actually meet an openly gay person until I was 23. Mm. And, uh, or at least I didn't know that I had met an openly gay person until I was 23. And honestly, I didn't fully come out until I was about 35. And I'm, mm -hmm. I'm, this is the last day that I can say that I'm 48 because I'll be 49 tomorrow. And, wow. um, um, so, uh, and I think it's happening younger for, for people yeah. these days, which is, which is wonderful. I did have friends who loved me and had friends, but we were all sort of evolving in our understanding together. Yeah. Um, because all of my friends were part of, uh, a conservative evangelical Christian uh, tradition that was trying to break free from, the non-life-affirming aspects of conservative evangelical uh, yeah. uh, tradition. And yeah. um, I, and I liken it a little bit to the peace process in Northern Ireland because we were making up the peace process as we went along. You know, yeah. and when I say we, I mean the entire society, never mind the people who were actually facilitating yeah. and chairing it. Yeah. Like these were people who had never spoken to each other before, at least not in public. Yeah. We didn't have mechanisms for rethinking how we would relate to each other as a society. And everybody was traumatized. So I, yeah, I consider, yeah. you know, you talk to most people in the north of Ireland and you ask how you think things are going politically, they will very naturally say, oh, it's pretty awful, you know, because we keep having sort of three steps forward and two steps back or even two and a half steps back. And I, I get, I understand that. I, I, I truly, I truly do. I often feel it myself. Uh, I'm, I'm impatient for uh, change. And at the same time, given where we came from, it's a political miracle. And I use that word advisedly because I don't want to suggest that humans had nothing to do with it. Um, uh, humans yeah. actually did make choices to do very courageous, uncertain things in the hopes that they would work. And sometimes they did, and sometimes they didn't. And yeah, sometimes, yeah, yeah. you know, there were ideas that were on the table 50 years ago that were good enough, but they weren't implemented then. And in similar ways to, we've known how to, to, to uh, uh, solve the climate crisis for decades. And I choose to believe that we will in the future uh, do better. And some of the doing better 
will be based on principles that we've all, we've everybody, everybody's known about for half a century. Yeah. You know. Um, yeah. yeah. What'll change will be a, a shift in our will and what we're actually willing to do. Yes. Now, I I want to come back to those bigger mm. questions, but for the moment, I still want to th- I I want to talk about what is necessary in the life of an individual to recognize, own, move through whatever their own fear, because you deal with that in your book, and yeah. and 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 it's ri- it's very very rich material. Um, there are no Thank easy you. now here now this is uh, I'm an underliner when I. <laughs> open a new book. I get out my pen and I'm ready. I'm ready for the points when they go, now, here are the three points and I underline them. And when there's sub points, I put little numbers in the, in the columns. Your book isn't like that, even though there are specific things. I mean, it, it, you wrap things up at the end of each chapter, but it's really what's so rich about the book is that it's stories and you don't underline in the middle of a story because the story <laughs> is inviting you to experience a very particular reality mm-hmm. and find for yourself within that story uh, your way through and, mm-hmm. and what part of that you can own. But, but there are some things that, that you point out. For instance, when you talk about the fear of being alone, yeah, you don't then say... Well, get off your ass and go out there and meet some new people. No. You know, go, go to the karaoke at the pub, for heaven's sakes. No. You don't, what, what you say is, maybe it's time for you to make friends with yeah. your God, whatever you conceive that to be, and mm. with yourself. Make mm. friends with yourself. Yeah. Which is, uh, it's, it's more, it's an invitation. It's not like, here's a to-do list. Yeah. So it, it flips. If I'm afraid of being alone, am I in the first place mm. a friend with my own self. Yeah. I mean, it's a lovely, it's a lovely invitation. Say a well, bit about that. Well, I, you know, everything that I write about in this book is about my own, like it's, it's, it's about a journey that I'm on very little, none of it's complete. Um, You're not there yet. No, I'm not there. <laughs> I'm not there yet. But even this conversation is a delight for me because it's reminding me of, Oh yeah, I, I, I wander off the I wander I wander off the path often you know I I wake up off the path yeah. you know and I go to sleep off the path and and my and again that's why it's good to be alive because I get to choose to grow right yeah. Yeah. um and I'd be I'd be bored if if it was all perfect all uh, the time yeah. so you know to befriend yourself it doesn't happen overnight, particularly if you are afraid of being alone. You probably aren't much of a friend to yourself. And that probably comes from messages you've internalized because of things other people said or did to you or other th- or affirming things that they didn't say, you know. Yeah. Um, and I've said terrible things to other people and I've not affirmed other people when when it would have been a good moment to do so. And I've had terrible things said to me and a lack of affirmation shown to me and tremendous love and affection shown to me and tremendous affirmation shown to me. And I get the opportunity to show it uh, to others. And it's a lifelong uh, uh, journey. Yes. There are yes. practices you can, you can begin around befriending yourself. And one is to look in the mirror, which some of us find difficult to do and ask a simple question. And that is, if this person was my best friend, What's one thing I would invite them to today? Because you can imagine saying that to somebody else, someone who you really knew and you really knew what their needs were. You know, this is a person who they love. They love just being invited to go for a walk or they love receiving a a birthday card um, or they love a really deep conversation or they just like being told that they matter. So look at yourself in the mirror and ask if this person was my best friend. What would I invite them to today? And behind all this is there's really two practices that I think are completely natural. And because we have fallen out of the habit of what is natural (laughs) and Mm -hmm. sacred, we have to choose them. We won't do them unless we uh, choose them. And they are foundational to all the practices in this book. And I think they are foundational to the experience of having a whole integrated uh, experience of of life and love. Yeah. The first is what we talked about at the start, and that is 
to practice breathing more slowly, maybe for one minute a day, or maybe for 24 hours a day, um, or somewhere in between. Don't start the practice while you're driving a car. Um, Although I I have to say, several years after I had been starting a meditation practice, it was precisely in the car that I learned how to, when somebody's tailgating me and I'm mm -hmm. feeling all my rage coming up, mm -hmm. that's precisely where I began to realize, oh, actually, I know how to deal with yeah. this because I've yeah. been breathing yeah. slowly and deeply for for yeah. years now, right? Yeah. So there is there comes a point where you can take it even in oh, the car. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's a point where you can where you can take it anywhere, and I I suspect it's just driving a car is probably not the best place to start to a start. meditation <laughs> practice. Um, and the second is to uh, find two other people to have meaningful conversations about what matters with. And the reason I say two other people, and that's a minimum, you know, you can have more than, than two, um, that uh, three people is a community, two people is a friendship, and, um, and can also be a power struggle. And if it's two people, one person may, may talk more than the other and conflict gets harder to resolve. But you've got, if you have three people, there's always a potential third perspective. And I outline some questions that we can ask each other yeah. around what's really going on. You know, we, we ask each other, not how are you doing? We ask, what's something that's life-giving for you? Yeah. And what's something that's not life-giving for you? Yeah. And then we just ask two more questions. The third is, what's the story that you want to live? And you know, with, with the, the, the principle being a more truthful and a more helpful story, a, a story that helps love be embodied in the world. And the fourth question is, how can we help each other? And I know so, so, so many people whose lives would be radically different if they had, even once a month, two other trustable friends who they could ask those questions with. Yeah. Uh, because we've been coerced by the socioeconomic story. I'm not going to call it reality. It's a story, the socioeconomic story of our shared society to believe that we are individuals in competition with each other, yeah. even with our friends, even yeah. with our friends, even with our loved ones. And that to truly ask for help is a shameful thing because it's a sign of And weakness. especially among men. Especially among men. Especially. Um, that it's a shameful thing. It's a sign of weakness. And there's a point past which it's not legitimate to ask. And I almost want to start past that point. Yeah. I'm like, you know, let's do away with the small talk. What is, what is, the, what is the jackboot on your chest? Brian, whenever yeah. you are in your deepest fears, yeah. um, and let me see if I can be in your corner. You never know. I might, I might actually already be in the ring uh, with you. And then what yeah. wisdom exists in the world that can help us take a step to reimagine this piece? I, I want to tell you two stories that amplify just what you said. One is about 22, 23 years ago, I started meeting with two other friends uh -huh. and uh, all of us same age we're all we were all clergy uh, within the Anglican Church all of us as it turns out were facing breakups to our marriages that mm -hmm. we didn't know about at the mm -hmm. time mm -hmm. but we began meeting and and it was totally instinctive because we hadn't read your book and the director's cut version of the Bible hadn't been published no not yet so <laughs> So we began meeting and the commitment was simply to travel with each other and whatever was going to happen next. And then what happened next was each of our marriages broke up. And we, so like soldiers, we were there for each other mm. through the, the difficult time. And we chose also instinctively, uh, we were reading a lot of James Hollis, the Jungian James mm -hmm. Hollis at the yeah, time. Yeah. Yeah. And he became our honorary member of what we called the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. <laughs> now, none of us had seen that film, and I'm told it was just as well because it wasn't a very good film. But uh, we called ourselves that because we knew that something was important about our gathering, mm. about, about being there for each other and having mm. this outside mentor. Mm. The other story mm -hmm. I want to tell you, and this is just what was happening when you were describing some of these strategies. Um, 
so I was almost 40 years a parish priest, mm. and I found when I was in trouble and, and I needed an, a soul-to-soul conversation, the people in the parish I knew I could trust were people who had suffered the most. Mm-hmm. For it, so there was a couple in my second parish, and I had buried their teenage daughter who had died mm. of leukemia, now mm. 14 years old. Mm. So their pain would never go away. They were going to carry that for the rest of their lives. And uh, they were uh, gracious people. They were, you know, uh, positive people. But I knew that if I had, if I had to go and take some of my suffering and share it with someone else, I took it to Tom and Kathy because Mm -hmm. they Mm -hmm. knew suffering and they Mm -hmm. had let me into their lives through the death of their daughter. So there is something about who's out there who I can trust myself Mm -hmm. with. Right. That's mm-hmm. and that's part. That's only part of what you were saying. But those are things. Some stories that came to my well, mind as you were and, talking. And thank you for for naming those because I think there's one of the most important parts of the story we're telling is uh, where we perceive ourselves to be in relation to the circumstances of our lives and to the world. Mm-hmm. And. Um, if I see myself as the protagonist, uh, that's the flip side of seeing myself as the victim. As a victim, yeah. Right? Yeah. And neither of those stories, I believe, neither of those stories is the full uh, truth. Yeah. Um, that, uh, and, and when I say victim, that doesn't mean, you, if I say you're not a victim, I mean, it's not my place to say you're not a victim, but yeah. I'm not a victim of my life. I have suffered. I have suffered. And other people did do things that had a suffering impact on me. Yeah. Um, and I've been lucky enough to experience the benefit of the doubt yeah. and to experience some grace in my life. And I'm not saying I forgive everybody or that it's easy to forgive by any means. I'm just not... Uh, something about growing up where I grew up kind of taught me the futility of retribution. Yeah. I want people to be accountable for the impact of their actions. I want people to make amends for the impact of their actions. But I want us all to realize, as I think it was Malcolm Muggeridge who said that we all live between the steeple and the gargoyle. You know, that none of us is holy and none of us is demonic. That we're all some sort of shade of gray. Are we moving toward the steeple? That's the thing. Are we letting the steeple be born uh, in us? And how do we relate as our, to our perception of where we are in the story of life and what truly matters. In fact, one of the books James Hollis wrote, didn't he write a book called What Matters Most? Yes. Um, and um, Living an Examined Life was the my introduction to James Hollis, which is a magnificent book because it's 21 chapters that are about five pages long each. And the invitation is to read one chapter a day for 21 days and see if, yeah. see if it helps you rethink your life. And one of the things I took from that is... Uh, and, fr- and from some experience in life, is that most of the things that I worry about are connected to not being able to hold on to things that I can't hold on to anyway. Hmm. So they're to do with the fear of scarcity. They're to do yes. with, if I if this happens, I will lose, what, what will I lose? I'll lose money or I'll lose security, which is, a, which is a, an, 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 an unperfectable notion because anything can happen anytime um or uh or or i lose reputation in the eyes of others well if the reputation wasn't authentic to begin with why would i want to hold on to it uh or if uh i would lose reputation in the minds of people who already have a fairly shallow view of the world i'm not that interested in their acclaim again this does not mean i always believe these things (laughs) this is the principle that i want to be at work uh, in my life is to transcend the fear of scarcity and the ultimate fear of scarcity is the fear of our own death and the fear that death is the worst thing that can happen to us now I, i i'm not saying that the death of a teenage daughter isn't the worst thing that happened to your friends i'm talking about my death isn't the worst thing that can happen to me um not truly living is the worst thing that can happen to me. I have no choice about my own death. I mean, I can choose to have a healthier lifestyle, but it's not going to stop me dying. And it's not going to, it can't prevent the unpredictable 
yeah. things from happening to me. Yeah. Um, but what I can choose most of all is, will I truly live? And, yeah. and truly living means asking yourself what matters most. And what matters most, I believe, is to join in the cosmically unfolding evolutionary story of love. And love is not a hallmark greeting card. And it is not, uh, to uh, quote your fellow countrymen, love is not a victory march either. Love is about everything that makes life happen. And it includes courage. And it includes sacrifice. And it includes ecstasy. And it includes tears. And it includes... Uh, receiving the generous uh, gifts of others and it includes breathing more slowly and connecting with other people to ask how shall we live and what will i do with these gifts that i have and who are the safe people to ask to help meet my needs the spiritual portal as it were that can help us make peace with our own deaths and deliver unto us the possibility of truly living i think is to do with this idea that if we could truly re-experience our own birth with all the frailty, the lack of control, the profound lack of knowledge of what was happening, it would probably feel like dying. And for you just to get here, Brian, for me just to get here required us to go through the valley of the shadow of death to um, as uh, John Moriarty, the astonishing Irish philosopher, mystic, gardener <laughs> um john mariarty talks about crossing the kidron stream which is the the river that jesus crosses into the garden of gethsemane the night before he's crucified in which he gets brought to the point of such terror i'm going to call it terror now jesus might want to correct my language uh, on that but it looks like terror to me where this, the, the, the gospels say that uh, his sweat became as blood on his, on his forehead, right? And this is what happens when Jesus crosses the Kidron stream. And he doesn't get up and say, hey, right, I'm coming back. I'm really looking forward to getting crucified tomorrow. <laughs> it's all going to be fine. <laughs> he doesn't yeah. say that. He actually, the first thing he says is he, 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 He's pretty pissed off with the three disciples who have fallen asleep while they were supposed to be in his corner. Yeah. Now, yeah. I also don't blame them because it's quite possible they had fainted under the duress of the terror that they were witnessing too. So we kind of need to give grace to them as well. The point is really you have to go through a kind of death before you can truly live. And it could be some source of comfort if we could imagine that maybe it already happened before. Yeah. And that it didn't, that, it, that we would not be able to experience anything in this life if we had not already died. Yeah. But he, so here's where I want us to go with this, because at the core of, of your book, and I think at the core of your message, wherever, however it comes out, is we have within us the capability of changing the stories we tell about the things that make us afraid. That there is choice involved, and it's the stories we tell that either keep us chained to our fears or that allow us to move through them to something more grace-filled. The stories we tell become self-fulfilling prophecies. So oh, let's because yeah. that's because what you're talking about just now, what I what I was hearing was. There is a story of love, however much that may sound like a, a Hallmark card moment, there is a story about how to be in the world, which is encapsulated by the word love, that's a different story than the story of the world is an awful dangerous place and I'm going to get hurt. So I'm, not, I'm going to stay at home or I'm, or I'm going to be the aggressor. I'm going to take the first swing. Mm. The story we tell does become a self-fulfilling prophecy. And if I could, if I could wave a, wand, a magic wand, it would be that we would we would teach children from the earliest age this truth yeah. that you get to shape at least part of your own reality, and the first questions you should be asking are, what is the story that I believe? Yeah. Most people don't ever think about this that that they believe stories. 
Yeah. They just have their beliefs and treat them like they're true. Yeah. And then once you've gotten some clarity on, on the stories you're, you're, you're believing, then ask, is this story true? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and the way you find that out is by referring it to people who you know to be wiser than you are. And some of those people are dead. Some of those people are in books and some of those people are in, in uh, uh, religious, spiritual, psychological uh, traditions. And some of those people live next door. And some of them may be in your family, but they're often not because <laughs> you're probably believing the story your family believes, which they're probably believing because their parents believed it. Um, so is it true? And if it's not true, what is a more true version of this story? Not, we'll never get to the full truth, um, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't try. And then the second is, is this story helpful? Now that I have a more truer, true version of it, what's the most helpful way I could tell? Uh, this story. I want to connect this to what you were saying just a little while ago when you were talking about one of the strategies for someone who we were saying, if if a fear of theirs is being alone, is to make friends with themselves. We were yeah. saying that, you know, yeah. that um, I would say there's also, once we get to know ourselves in a way that looking in the mirror or being good to ourselves, being generous to ourselves, giving ourselves a break, all the things that would begin to would look like self-love when we start to love ourselves. There's also a sense in which we discern the truth of the stories that we tell and others tell internally, right? Like mm -hmm. you've mentioned, um, there are wise people we can go to, and, right? Yes. But there's also, the more we get to know ourselves, the more we can stop and say, now, wait a sec, how does this check out? with my own oh, deepest yeah. intuitions that uh, oh, yeah. I don't think this story is serving me. I don't think this story is serving anybody, mm -hmm. right? But that mm -hmm. only comes because we've gained confidence in our in the voice that's within yeah. us. Yeah. And I, and I tend to think, you know, we, we don't know, but the sense I have is that that voice exists in every, in every soul. Every, every soul has that voice. And again, most of us have just not been taught how to pay attention to it. And frankly, one of the things that trauma does to lots of us is it puts a wall around that voice. Yeah. And it disconnects us from that. Vo well, no, disconnects the wrong word. It puts a wall around it and we can't, you can't see or hear the voice. And we may discover through good medicine that the wall protected the most vulnerable, the most tender part of us. And there comes a time in later life when you can start dismantling that wall and get in touch with that voice. And then there are, there are people who, if they practice this enough, they become the voice or the voice, the voice becomes so, them. This is profound. I, I, I mean, when, when you talk about this in the book, it, it actually, you talk about the core beneath the core. And I remember reading Eckhart Tolle, and I don't know whether this was his language mm. or whether I appropriated it or whether I'm, for me, the, uh, um, I, I think of it as the eye behind the eye. It's mm. like there's a part of us that regardless of what else we may suffer, that is indomitable. There's a, because it doesn't, that, that we can consult this part of ourselves that can look out from a very deep place and go, wow, of talking to ourselves, you're really mm -hmm. getting angry about that. Mm -hmm. Or you're really getting, <laughs> but that person is not yeah. angry. Yeah. That person yeah. is not afraid, right? Yeah. And, and yeah. you talk about it as the, that, that kind of core within yeah. the core, beneath the core, which is a very helpful, and that's the voice I think we're talking about. It, and, and, you know, Eckhart Tolle's namesake, Meister Eckhart. Um, yes. German mystic said something like the eye with which I see God is God's eye seeing me. Yes. And like whether the word God has positive or negative connotations for you, the eye with which I see God is God's eye seeing me. I think it's a way of saying the part of me that yearns for something more. That's God in me. Yeah. And even the part in me that feels distress that's love in me as well because it means i'm not a robot yeah. or the part of me that feels angry and can notice the anger you know and especially be tender with myself like oh i'm doing it again aren't i you know yeah. and then go to what's the legitimate need underneath this anger what's the what's what's the real ache going on in me i remember one of the a privileged moment um getting to 
you know, I get to I get to go to places and do these things that, that we call them, you know, people call them retreats and call them leading retreats. And I don't really I don't really even know what that what that means to me. It's gathering people away from everyday life and trying to connect uh, and learn and share. And we were doing the kind of initial introduction. And this was this was in uh, with people from the some of whom were worked in the entertainment industry. And we were doing the, hello, my name is so-and-so, and this is why I'm here. And we got to this guy who was, uh, you know, someone with a significant career in entertainment. And he said, you know, my name is so-and-so, and I came here because he invited me, and I just want to be, and then he just stopped, and tears came to his eyes. And he said, the truth is, I live in this town, and he meant Hollywood, you know, I live in this town. And I just want something real, <laughs> right? So the part of you that wants the real. Yeah. And we need to be creating more and more and more environments in which people can say to the real in each other, you are welcome here, yeah. you know? And I think this is one of the things we haven't really even, you know, begun to talk about kind of culture, the, 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 you know, cultural and political um stories. Well, but, let's go there because I know, think we should, we need to go there. So as we've been talking about individuals who may have uh, known fear growing up and that may have been immobilizing to them, know that uh, or learn that there are other ways of telling the story of their growth that mm. may say, I can go through, I can get through this and my fear can mm -hmm. actually serve me. My fear may actually uh, prove to be a gift. Mm -hmm. If there was, well, that can't even say this. What I was going to say is what everyone says. If there was a time we need a better story, it's right now. <laughs> but but it is true. This, these are fearful times. Yeah. They're yeah, yeah. fearful, fearful times. And I don't know that I've had a conversation with anyone in the last few months that hasn't included some kind of reference to environmental degradation, yeah. political instability, to, yeah. uh, to uh, violence. And so many of these issues, what we hear are competing stories and the loudest story is the one that's often doing the most damage whereas yeah. somewhere and i know this is true because you and i would both occupy smaller networks of people are trying to tell different stories mm -hmm. <laughs> but but you just hope there's at some it's going to be a tipping point where yeah. the storytelling shifts because yeah. the stories currently being told as the modern day myths that guide our culture are unsustainable yeah yeah, this is, I mean, there's, there's three hours left of this episode, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> so there's a whole lot in there. And I, I, I want to treat it with that, with real tenderness and start with, I, I know people are afraid. I, I experience the fear too. I really do. Um, and that drives me to claim joy and creativity in ways that I think if we lived in a more boring time or a less unstable time, uh, yeah, you know, more, more stable times are boring, you know, yeah. um, and, uh, uncertain times call forth radical action. So I think when you say we've never needed this more than we do now, I used to resist that because, there, it can go too close with, you know, this is the worst time in history. It's not the worst time in history. Yeah. I mean, it may be the worst time for you individually or you as a member of a particular group, but it's not the worst time in history. Yeah. Um, um, there have been monstrous times before. Um, and so I want to be guarded about saying we've never needed it more. However, where I might be changing my mind about that is... It may be that because of the storytelling mechanisms that we now have, which enable everybody with access to an electronic device to publish the story yeah. that they are usually unconsciously repeating, it may be that we've never needed wise storytelling more than we do now because we've never had more storytelling than we do now and because most of the storytelling is unconscious, yeah. there's an antidote needed that hasn't needed to be called forth in this way and at this scale. 
And I'm saying it may be because we don't know and we won't, we won't, we may not know for a few centuries when people look back uh, on on this moment and shake out what really happened here. Um, What I am more confident of, more, more confident, I would even say more certain of, is that this is a time for everybody to allow their best. And when I say best, I don't mean A plus on a term paper. And I don't mean coloring in between the lines or never getting a speeding ticket. I'm not talking about that kind of morality. Although do drive, do drive more carefully (laughs) and don't, and don't begin a meditation practice while you're driving. Um, the best in you, the best hospitality in you, the best smile in you, the most cur- the most courage in you, the best listening ear in you, the most willingness to step into the ring and say no, the most willingness to be humbly reflective and say, I don't know, and I don't know what I don't know, uh, and to not say that you know something when you don't know it. But if you do know it, you should say it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, this is a time for everybody to allow themselves to be awakened, to bring what they can to the co-creation of a safer and more compassionate world. Beginning, James Hollis would call that showing up. It's show, time yeah. for each of us to show up. And in the act of showing up, you will receive a richer, deeper, often more joyful Frankly, often more difficult (laughs) life for which you will be grateful. And it might, and and frankly, again, I don't want to be blasé about this. Like, I don't even know how to say this without sounding like I'm diluting it. The act of showing up sometimes does lead directly to our own suffering. And for some of us, a small proportion of us, our own deaths, right? But that's just the way it's always been. Okay, it's the way it will always be as long as there are people who behave selfishly. There will always be risks. But again, the deeper risk is not fully living your life. And hand in hand with guilt over privilege, you know, I realize I'm privileged and then I spend the rest of my life going going to expensive um, uh, vacation spots so that I can I can heal my inner guilt about that uh, rather than frankly if you wake up to your privilege and you start feeling guilty about it the best thing you can do is go and serve somebody less privileged than yourself yes. that'll help you deal with the guilt <laughs> yeah that'll help you deal with the guilt yeah. um, uh, so hand in hand with that is the numbness and the despair that many of us live in when we allow ourselves to be bombarded by the story of doom and the threats that you already named, you left out the threat of nuclear war, which most of us had thought was forgotten, but now it's kind of back in the story too. But yes, no truly human person would not experience some despair or some hopelessness if you really took that seriously. But there is a step beyond despair. There is a step beyond despair. And living in your despair is not helping anybody, not to mention you. Holding it tenderly. Desmond Tutu, who, again, wouldn't want to be anybody's hero, but is one of my heroes. Desmond Tutu was once asked, um, at the height of some of the most monstrous violence in South Africa, apartheid-era South Africa, why are you always smiling? Because, you know, anybody who remembers Archbishop Tutu, that's smile, (laughs) delight, energy. Um, And he said something like, because the people don't need to be reminded of how terrible things are or of the terrible things. They're well aware of the terrible things. Those terrible things are happening to them. What the people need is a vision of what's possible. And then he said, and I sometimes, this is the quote I've heard, so forgive me if, if, um, if this is not an absolutely accurate uh, quote, but what I heard he said next was, I sometimes scream myself to sleep at night. 
right? And so there's something there to me that's profound about the integration of any 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 authentic appreciation of the reality of the world will lead us to weep. And any authentic appreciation of the reality of the world will lead us to think, this is an amazing, amazing privilege to be here right now. Yeah. What am I going to do with the gifts I have? And who are the safe people that I'm going to ask to help me with my needs? Yeah. And maybe I get one more period of 24 hours to do it. Or maybe I get another 50, 60, 70 years to do it. I don't want to not live just because I'm afraid of dying. Yeah. I want to live, frankly, a more vibrant life, a more courageous, a more creative life because I know that I will die. I know that I will die. Um, and I don't want to waste any moments. I don't want to waste the opportunity to be kind. I don't want to waste the opportunity to forgive. I don't want to waste the opportunity to tell, to say truthfully, I can't forgive. This is, this has caused me so much pain. I can't forgive. Will you help me? You know, I don't want to waste, I don't want to waste the opportunity to be real. And that's what I want for everybody else. Um, and I am by no means an expert on this. I am, I am an amateur and the, the root of the word amateur is lover. And that is, I'm a lover of the practice of what it is to be alive. But, but you tell the stories that take us there in this book and just in our conversation. I mean, as a storyteller that, that I think stories do the heavy lifting uh, for us, if we're able yeah. to, so uh, I'm aware that we're coming to the end of our yeah. time. You have yeah. another appointment. Um, before before we go, um, what always happens, Gareth, is folks listen to they get engaged in a conversation like ours, and there there'll be questions about, well, how can I follow this up? What do I do? Well, everyone has their own life that they have to attend to, but how could they follow this up with with some of the work that you're doing? Right. What are you doing? Are you are you working on a new book? Actually, you said you're going to be taking it to the stage. You're taking yourself to the stage. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm. I've been uh, working on a on a solo a solo show that's more like a kind of a, a dramatic, funny, hopefully engaging, uh, performed monologue, um, to which any of my friends listening will say, isn't that just what it's like talk, <laughs> you do talk, anyway? talking to you all the time? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. and, um, so we're working on, on that. But if you, if you, you know, if you want to connect with the, the stuff I'm involved in directly, uh, uh, theporchcommunity.net the, theporchcommunity.net we call it the porch because um, you know I spend most of my time in, in the US American South and a lot of people have these big porches that um, some people might call balconies or verandas Verandas. and the yes. idea was that on a Sunday afternoon everybody would gather and it would just be a good place for a meaningful conversation and so okay. we publish some essays and we have a gathering once a year uh, that tries to be a kind of a laboratory for transformative storytelling. And finally, we take people to Ireland uh, for these learning uh, experiences, um, trying to experience the landscape of, of the north of Ireland, both the physical landscape, the cultural landscape, and the story of peace building. Yeah. But whether you connect with any of those things directly or not, truly, these the two foundational practices are free you don't have to ever read my book to discover them. There are many people who've written and talked about them more profoundly than I have. And that is, there's no substitute for practicing breathing more slowly, literal breathing and metaphorical breathing and yes. being yeah. in community with other people who you can talk meaningfully about what matters, what your yeah. gifts are and what your needs are. Gareth, thank you so much for this. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for this conversation. It's been yeah. life-giving for me. Ah, me too. Um, you've just become the latest in a long line of Brian's uh, with whom I have had lovely encounters. Thank you. <laughs> I have a co-author a co called Brian. I have a brother called Brian. And I have a husband called Brian. Yeah. <laughs> Brian, so, you know, there's a lot of good Brian's in the There world. are a lot of good Brian's.
Thank you for joining Gareth Higgins and me for our conversation on hope in frightening times. For more information on his book, How Not to Be Afraid, and for a link to his online community, The Porch Community, please visit the show notes. The Mystic Cave is an unpaid labor of love. My reward is when people listen. So please help spread the word by rating the show wherever you get your podcasts and by inviting others to join us. You can also sign up on my website to receive the blog that accompanies each new episode, serving as a backgrounder. Next time, and for several episodes following, we leave the world as we know it for a world of spirit guides, higher selves, levels above and levels below, and even the psychedelics that might take us there. We begin with Jan Thompson, a Reiki master whose work with the body's energy connects us to the energies that transcend the body in an endless cosmos of health and healing. Buckle up and join me. I'm Brian Pearson. This is The Mystic Cave. It's too late to stop now.